You're listening to another episode of Lords of Limited with your hosts, Ben Worney and Ethan Sachs. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Lords of Limited. My name is Ben Worney, and joining me on the line is Ethan Sachs. Ethan, how did your show go this afternoon? It went pretty well, actually. It's been a good weekend. Yeah, we just opened this play that I'm doing in Pittsburgh uh, last night. Had a matinee this afternoon. Sent you a little selfie from on stage. <laughs> that was ridiculous. I got I got this text message. There's a picture of Ethan's face. And he was like, live from Act 3 on stage. <laughs> what is going on? <laughs> yeah, I play this like... Uh, I mean, I, I play the son of this couple, and then in the last scene, he's just sort of, like, regressed into this, like, sort of spoiled, socially awkward 35-year-old, and uh, I spend most of my onstage time with my face buried in my phone, and so I, I send someone a selfie of my uh, face on stage every every show. I feel privileged. Yeah, you're, you're the lucky lucky few. That should be a giveaway we do on, uh, on stream or something. Should uh, give someone a lucky selfie from my show. Anyway, how, how about you? How, how was your weekend? It was good. I spent the whole weekend drafting, which is a nice change of pace for me. Stream Damn. Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, planning to stream later this evening. I don't even know what's going on in my life. I woke up this morning and I checked Twitter and I just saw it was like trophy post after trophy post from you. You posted like three yesterday? Uh, four, yeah. I had uh, oh I had two on Saturday that I didn't post and then two, or no, two on Friday and then two on Saturday, uh, and I hadn't posted the ones from Friday yet, so I posted four trophies in a row. I've been on a heater. I've trophied four out of my last five drafts. Gross. So uh, I'm XLN. I'm still the same. Uh, 25 trophies in 76 drafts, 153 in 70, 68.6% win rate. In IMA, I have done 19 drafts, and I have eight trophies uh, out of those 19 drafts, 42 and 15 overall record, and a 73.6% win rate. That's awesome. I took a little trip back to Ixalan this week. Um, I was feeling, I don't know, a little nostalgic, also feeling a little burnt out on Iconic Masters. And so I got a trophy um, up to 184 drafts in that, 346 to 190, still 65% win rate. Uh, Iconic Masters, I have nine trophies in 44 drafts, an 88 to 44 win-loss ratio for a clean 67% win rate. Yeah, that's that's it right there. Exactly 2-1. You've been yeah. in 2-1 purgatory. I told you, I've been in, I mean, that's a lot, right? Nine trophies in 44 drafts is not great. That's like one in five drafts, which is pretty low for me. But my win rate is still 67%. I've been 2-1-ing a lot. It's better than being in 1-2 hell, I guess. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I'm not like that mad about it. I just, uh, you know, it's makes me think about things that I'm doing differently. I will get in, into that uh, in a bit in this episode, I'm sure. But um yeah, I, I just wonder what what's different about this format for me, and and certainly I kind of wonder what's different about it for you, considering your uh, your great win record. I'm pretty sure I know why I'm doing well. I think the I think, I think the three best decks in the format are like the decks that I naturally tend towards. Like I think the mm-hmm. three best decks are blue control, which I love, and blue black aggro mill, and blue red spells aggro, and those are like. Yeah the three decks i wanted to draft most in the format and i've been lucky enough to have them like one of the three be open quite a bit in the drafts i've done yeah well before we get into what our main topic is today which we're both really really excited about uh we wanted to shout out our new patrons for this week yes that's right we do have a patreon page for this podcast patreon.com slash lords of limited is a place where you can go to give back to the podcast monetarily if you so choose the podcast will always be free but it's a nice way to give back allows us to to know that we're supported and improve the show and also give back to you a little bit as well so we'd like to welcome miguel mitch and kirby 
all to the team. Thank you so much for your support. It means so much to us. Um, you too can become a patron if you would like. Get access to our Lords of Limited Discord channel. Um, get access to our show notes for each episode and a little pre-show recording that we do when we're getting things set up. You see a little behind the scenes of the podcast. Um, all of that stuff is available to you for different tiers of support. Um, but thank you so much, Miguel, Mitch, and Kirby for joining us this week yeah we really really appreciate it and if you know financially is not a way that you're able to get back to the show tell your friends about the show uh we would we would love to grow our audience too um and i'm especially excited about about this show so if you if you know somebody that this show you know this show could help out tell them to give it a listen spread the good word yeah for sure all right ben let's we're we're teasing everybody too much what are we doing what's our episode this week yeah our episode is about making your own luck um and this this initially originated as kind of a joke (laughs) on my stream yeah. Uh, cause I say, why me all the time? Uh, and I have a tendency to be living in the past when I'm doing a draft, you know, if I wish I had taken another Avenue through the draft or things like that. And I also kind of have this deep seated belief that I'm always fighting that I'm horribly unlucky and more unlucky than the rest of the world. Um, <laughs> so I think you were even Skyping in on stream, weren't you? Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and you were just like, what, what are you doing? Why are you talking like this? Like, it's just a complete and absolute waste of energy to be thinking about what we could have done. Like we need to be deciding what we're doing right now. Yeah. And so you made this command in my chat uh, called exclamation point. Why me? So in, in Twitch, if you put an, like you can do commands with exclamation points in front of the word and the bot that's in your channel does something. So my exclamation point, why me command says here lies Ben Warney. We hardly knew ye. (laughs) A little, little rest in peace tribute. Yeah. So like, what is this, this state of mind? Why me mentality is kind of like a victim mentality or a state of helplessness due to perceived repetitive bad luck or, inability on your part to accept a situation or a circumstance that's happened in your life like either like specifically in magic the gathering and i think this also pertains to uh, real life as well and there's a lot of lessons to be applied from magic and taken to to real life yeah so today what we're going to do is take a look at a number of scenarios that magic players and limited players come against every time they play and these are experiences that you and i have certainly have many many times and that i'm sure our listeners have as well and we're going to take a look at some proactive fixes for those situations and also some ways that that mentality extends to real life situations as well so the first one that we want to look at is uh, sort of in the logical progression of a game of limited the draft portion and watching a good deck pass you by while you're drafting or opening rares that aren't in your colors in pack two or pack three. I think it's very easy when that situation happens to go, you, you have this idea of like, oh, I passed this card, pick three. And then every subsequent pick, part of your mind is like, well, if I had taken that, what I would do is this and I would have this really sweet black, white life gain deck, you know? Yes. I have been there many, many times. Yeah, of course. But there's nothing you can do about that, right? We don't have a time machine. We can't go back to pick three. So the only thing you can do is take the information that you have at the moment. And I think there is a way that you can look at that draft and maybe go back to it and go, well, should I have moved into that deck at that point? Did I undervalue that card as a signal? Let's take Sanguine Bond, for example, um, in the if we're talking about Black White Life Gain and Iconic Masters. I'm not sure where I'm at in terms of this being a signal that, that Black White Life Gain is, is open or not. But if it comes to you and then you see it go by and then a bunch of other good Black White Life Gain cards are coming, you might go, oh, I should have taken that Sanguine Bond. Well, then maybe you need to reevaluate 
where that card is in terms of your signal picks. Like, so maybe you think, well, if I see it pick six, that's going to be when I'll move in. But maybe you need to bump that up to, to pick four or pick three or something like that. If you're experiencing this often, I think that's a particularly good time to go, oh, I need to reevaluate what I consider a signal. Or maybe reevaluate how I'm staying open in a draft. Maybe I'm hanging on to my first few picks a little too much. Maybe I'm unwilling to move off of my bomb rare first pick and not really doing the sort of open draft navigation that I know I should be doing, but perhaps I'm not because I want to play this sweet rare, that sort of thing. Any other thoughts on that, Ben? Yeah, uh, Sanguine Bond specifically, like I, I really struggle with because I, I want to get into that black white life gain deck, mm-hmm. but it's such a, it's such a narrow card that like you know if you pick it and you don't end up in black white life gain, you wasted a pick. But if yeah. you pass it and then you want to move into black white life gain, it's pretty hard because somebody to your left, maybe not directly to your left, but maybe two or three seats down, is probably going to pick it, and you definitely don't want to be fighting against somebody for that black white life gain deck. So it's it's a delicate balance of deciding i think what you said is really important deciding when you're going to take it as a signal that you should move into the deck is it fourth pick is it sixth pick kind of draw the line and rather than thinking about that in the heat of the moment in the draft i like what you said about going back and reviewing the drafts so you can set on moto to save your draft logs and i think you and i both do this now to where you can Mm -hmm. put it in a draft viewer and go back and look you know after the fact when you don't have a clock and or chat uh breathing down your neck to try to figure out what you actually should have done Mm mm-hmm yeah, I think especially for, for you and I as streamers and anyone else out there who streams or maybe drafts with a friend, you can get to a point where there's too many cooks in the kitchen. Yes, absolutely. Because drafting is such a, when it comes down to it, I mean, there are, you know, pick orders or quote unquote correct decisions to make, but there is a good amount of it that comes down to personal preference and feel and and experience, or, or maybe I have more drafts under my belt, so I know this isn't a signal, but the few drafts you've done as a listener or a viewer, you've had a different experience but so there is a lot going into people's decisions about picks and i think at the end of the day you just sort of gotta trust your own gut you're the one at the helm and i think that's a that's something that takes a bit more um experience a lot a lot easier to say to say it than to do it i think yes and i when you and i skype in on drafts together i'm and i think we're both pretty good about this like if you're Mm -hmm. if i'm skyping into your stream or you're skyping into my stream giving our opinion and saying you know, it's up to you, like your call between these two cards and then letting right. the person pick and then moving forward in the next pick with that mentality. Uh, and mm-hmm. I used to draft with my older brothers all the time. And it, we definitely suffered from too many cooks in the kitchen, especially during like vintage cube or something, because there's so many, right. <laughs> so many sweet options. Right. And, and yeah, especially during something like cube, you have a lot of your preferences are going to come to the forefront like someone might really think smokestack is the the place to be and someone might think that deck is terrible or hate playing that style of deck you know that's a really i think vintage cube especially is is the hardest to do and and to a lesser extent these master sets i think yes smokestack's definitely the place to be if you were wondering (laughs) (laughs) we're gonna have a lot of fun on our 18 hour stream i can tell it's gonna be great i can't wait so i think that that idea of just like you see that deck pass you by like oh there's nothing i could have done but i think that that idea of maybe reevaluating what you consider a signal is the kind of proactive fix you can take so that the next time that comes up, you can know, oh, I've seen this before, and I think I should take this now. Or maybe that was just a fluke, you know? They're, they're, you might need a, a larger sample size. But things that you can do to affect that situation, that's going to be the big takeaway today. Yep, for sure. And I think I've, made, I've personally made some big strides in this, especially in 
tribal sets. Like, I think Ixalan was obviously very tribal. And I think Iconic Masters, to mm-hmm. an extent, has, like, decks that you're supposed to try to navigate your way into. Prior to these two sets in those type of formats, I felt very lost and I felt very much like a victim of the draft. Like, I didn't have much control over my draft. And as a result of, like, talking through this stuff with you and, like, doing the podcast and streaming and listening to chat and watching other people stream, I feel like I have a plan for those types of sets now. And I feel like I have a lot more agency over what's going on in the draft portion in those types of sets. I mean, the the fix from pre-beard to post-beard podcast episode was night and day for me. I mean, like, my win rate skyrocketed. I was having a lot more fun in the draft because I felt like I was seeing... I, I don't know, it's like that like scene in The Matrix when he starts like seeing all the numbers scroll down. Like I felt like I was seeing <laughs> a layer of the draft that I hadn't seen before, you know? Yeah, for sure. Um, so the second part of the magic gameplay that we want to look at is something where you just sort of feel like your opponent just keeps top decking the best cards over and over and over again. You're like just up against it. So we can say, yes, variance is a part of magic, right? Even the best players in the world are only winning like 70% of the time or something. So we recognize that this game is very much influenced by luck. Sometimes people are going to draw the cards they need at the exact time they need to draw them. But what are you doing to anticipate those draws? So there are many, many factors that come in here. Have you seen cards in game one or two that you could see in this game that you can think to play around, right? So have you seen, like, maybe a, a counter spell? Um, are, are they in a particular color that has reach? I mean, so when I mean reach, like, let's say you're at a low life total. So if they're in red, for example, we can think back to Inferno Jet in Hour of Devastation. Ugh. or Unfriendly Fire in Ixalan. These are cards that you can sort of calibrate and be like well how do i lose this game or what are the sorts of things i need to be thinking about like if i make this attack and i leave myself vulnerable to go down to six life for inferno jet or go down to four life and be in range of unfriendly fire has your opponent been playing in a strange way that might signal that they have a certain kind of card in their hand so they're they're i think we've talked about this on previous episodes but are they you know attacking in such a way that makes it seem like they think you're racing but you clearly have the race in hand on board so does that mean that they probably have maybe a charging monster sword that's going to come out on turn five something like that so what are you doing to take all the information available to you in the game to adjust to those kinds of quote-unquote unlucky top decks because what we're trying to do is reduce the amount of time that those unlucky top decks really are just out of your control so, like, if it's literally just, like, there was nothing I could have done, I feel like I, I made the right decisions with the information that I had. But if you left some sort of value on the table, that's really a problem. And that's the kind of thing where you can look at yourself or look at the way you played the game and see how did I make decisions based on what my opponent was doing that led them to have that lucky top deck. Did I, did I let them play into drawing that out? Maybe I could have killed them a turn earlier, things like that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a couple things to add on there. One, if you're really serious about this, like you can go back and watch match replays on Magic Online and try mm-hmm. to figure out decision trees uh, that led to your opponent top decking that card. What did you really play optimally? Was there anything you could, could have done? I actually just had a situation two or three days ago I was streaming. I don't know. It's all sort of blurring together <laughs> since I've streamed so much, but I actually could have won a game. I like I was really on the back foot and my opponent had like drawn a car that had wrecked me. I don't remember what it was, but I had two furnace whelps in play and my opponent didn't have any flying blockers 
and they were at 13, which was such a high life total. But they had cards on their side of the battlefield that were like seven, seven, six, sixes. They had some big stuff. And I just like had this mentality that I'm losing. Like there's no way I could win. And I could have actually won. Somebody in chat pointed out if I had attacked with Furnace Whelp, spent all of my red mana to pump it, dealt them seven, and then the next turn dealt them six. And I just didn't even see it because I was so tunnel visioned on the fact that they'd top decked a card to just like totally destroy my side of the board. I don't remember the specifics, but I remember the feeling of helplessness and letting that like stop me from making optimal decisions. And then the other thing I'd say is I think this is a lot tougher for people that don't get to play magic as often as you and I do. Mm-hmm. And it's still hard for us. Like it's easier for me if I know I'm going to get to play 10 drafts in a week or 15 drafts in a week to say, eh, I opponent top deck, like, and just shrug it off. And I try very hard to do that. Cause I think, you know, when I'm streaming, I don't want, want people to see me whining or moaning or whatever uh, despite mm-hmm. that being my natural tendency um <laughs> so like you know if you only get a draft once a week this is still going to happen to you some and you've got to be even more prepared mentally for how you're going to handle it oh yeah when you have such a, a much smaller sample size to be able to go like oh well it happens it feels really bad to like lose three matches in a row three drafts in a row because of variance which does happen but if you're not having this mindset of like, what am I doing? How is this on me? What can I do better? Then you're not going to allow yourself to have that opportunity of going, oh, great. It was just variance. Like I did everything I could and I still lost and that's going to happen sometimes. But everything that was in my control, I took care of. Yep, absolutely. And so one thing we're going to do in this episode that I'm I'm super excited about is try to relate, like identify the the underlying issue in all of these uh, situations that occur in magic and kind of apply them to life situations like real life situations and how you can you know just improve your general quality of life through maybe how you're thinking about magic so i think the underlying fundamental issue here in in these two scenarios is bad luck right you're feeling sorry for yourself because why me exclamation point like right why does this always happen to me um so what what can you do about that when i was in college i was a resident assistant and then like my senior year i was actually in charge of a dorm like supervising college students which looking back on was kind of insane but uh so we did this thing in training called the fish philosophy we had like two weeks of training before the the school year every year and it's got like these four tenants the fourth of which is choose your attitude which i think is like on its face value like at the time when i was a college student i thought it was the dumbest thing on the planet like i I, me as a person i'm like very cynical and my tendency is to be negative i'm a very glass half half empty kind of person like Mm -hmm. naturally and i have to really fight that tendency in my life But I do think, you know, I've grown up a lot and I do think having a positive mental attitude is like crazy important. And I'm really thankful that we had this training at the time because now I'm like ready. At the time, I wasn't really ready to hear it. But like within the past three or four years, I have been ready to hear it. And it's really helped me in my overall approach to life. So what this is, the fish philosophy, it's like this, it's called a Pike Place Fish Company. And it's in Seattle. It's like a fish uh, store. They sell fish. Fishermen collect the fish, whatever, you know, like fishing cook the fish, bring them in, clean them, all that good stuff. Ben is an expert on fish, if you guys didn't know. He yes. Like, knows everything about fish. It's clear from the way he talks about it. Yes, I know I know all about the fishing. <laughs> Just the way you know about sports ball. It's sports. <laughs> oh, man. So what what these people do is they're, they're just, like, hanging out. They're tossing fish all over the place. Uh, and just generally, like, you know, tr- they're trying to entertain in addition to selfish like it's kind of a core tenant of their business um and so they have these four principles which are uh, be there which is kind of being emotionally present for people like your coworkers and your customers 
the second one is play, and you're supposed to try to tap into your natural way of being creative, enthusiastic, having fun, hence the fish throwing to each other, and they have all these silly dances, and they huddle up, and they go team and things before work. And number three is make their day. You're supposed to try to find simple ways to serve or delight people in a meaningful, memorable way, not because you want something from them, but because that's the kind of person you want to be. So trying to give to others. And then the fourth one, which I think is the most important and kind of the other three stem from is choosing your attitude. So taking responsibility for how you respond to what life throws at you. Like you, you have a choice for how you're going to react to every situation that comes up and doing it with a positive attitude generally improves your quality of life and i think it improves the quality of life of people around you do you ever have any experiences with any that kind of stuff i mean this i think is my biggest leak as a streamer but also the biggest strength in my magic game because of streaming is that like i i feel like i may have said this on the podcast before but about i think like two years ago two and a half years ago i was like streaming for like five people and one of them was my brother who is a, a faithful viewer and I was, like, feeling bad about myself because I, like, missed a play and, like, apologizing to chat that I, like, screwed up and, like, feeling bad. And then I, like, you know, got off stream and my brother texted me and he was like, you can't do that. Like, <laughs> no one wants to watch you feel bad about yourself. Like, you just have to move past it. And just, like, doing that superficially, even if, like, m what I'm feeling inside is, like, I feel bad because I'm, like, super competitive and I wanted to win that game and I made a mistake. What I do on the outside is brush it off or like make a joke at my own expense. You know, like that's a, a big part of my stream is like, you know, I feel like people make fun of me, like chat makes fun of me. I make fun of myself. Like I don't take myself too seriously. I'm not trying to be like a magic pro. I'm just trying to be an entertainer who does like care about winning. But, you know, that's sort of like secondary. You're a casual streamer who streams casual magic casually, right? Exactly. That's like <laughs> bit, that's that's the brand that I've created for myself. And that really does affect your attitude. It's so weird that that kind of like just I have to act positive, even though what I would want to do is like be mad about that what happened in that game because I'm streaming. I have to act positive, And that does change your attitude. You do feel better quickly. You know, you you get out of that slump faster with that kind of attitude. And I think that's that's so I, I feel like that doesn't sound like it would make sense or that it would happen or i certainly am am like you as a, a cynical person and i would sort of be like well that, that's not going to happen like just because you act a certain way that doesn't change the way you feel but it really does make a difference and it makes the game more fun because you take it a little less seriously or you're able to brush something off a little quicker than you might normally be able to well, if you can imagine like a whole, you know, if you, you're saying that happens for yourself, like the idea of this is like, this is like kind of for a workplace type thing. Yeah. If everybody brings that attitude to work, like, and you're rubbing off on each other and your mm -hmm. positive attitudes affecting the people around you, it just creates a sense of this isn't really a job. This is fun. We're hanging mm -hmm. out. We're doing this thing. We're helping other people. We're helping each other. Like, and it's just a, it positivity builds more positivity, I think. One of my least favorite things that happens backstage. So when, when you do a play, I don't know if people know this, but the audience is a really big deal. And when you're in a play and you go backstage, you talk about the audience and like how they're reacting, especially in a comedy, you know, how they're laughing or they're quiet or whatever. And one of my least favorite things is how people, I think actors like to get really in their head about like, oh, I didn't get that laugh or whatever. And then they start to like get mad at the audience. They like resent them a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, at intermission today, people were sort of like, oh man, this audience is like, they're quiet. They, they don't like the show or whatever. Like... I, I don't like this audience because they're not laughing, you know, and I, and that's a really easy bandwagon to jump on. And then like everyone starts chiming in like, yeah, and then then you feel like you don't have to like 
give your best for the second half of the show because you've decided that you've written off this audience. And it's a really quick snowball. And it's something I really try and like cut off as soon. I'm like, let these people enjoy the show however they want to enjoy it. If they want to be quiet, let them be quiet. If they want to pay $40 for a nap, let them do that. Like whatever they want to do is how they get to enjoy the show. And we just have to do our job, you know? Yeah, you, you do your best regardless. Yeah. Exactly. Because that's out of your control. You have zero control over the audience. I have zero control over the audience. Exactly right. Wow. I did not quite actually put it in that that kind of framework, but it's true. Yeah, it's out of my control. I don't it's like it's way. like a top deck. Like it's you don't know what your opponent's gonna draw. <laughs> oh man, magic is life. All right, you wanna take us on to number three here? Yeah, all right, so number three. So mulliganing is something that happens to everybody in every uh match almost of magic, probably, in, in some of your games. And I think there's a very easy thing to do is that you go down to six. And your six-card hand is worse than your seven-card hand, and you think, I should have kept the seven. Or, oh, I've mulliganed a bunch already, and I'm a little tilted, so I'm going to keep this sketchy seven because these mulligans haven't been working out. And so this is pretty clear results-oriented thinking. And I think they're the proactive fix here, which is hard to do, but is similar to what we talked about in the draft portion of like not getting tunnel-visioned about what could have happened, but just taking into account what is happening in front of you. So the fact that the six-card hand you have is bad has nothing to do with the seven-card hand. It does not change the fact that you at the time when you saw those seven cards believed the mulligan was correct, right? As far as you're concerned, that seven-card hand doesn't exist, right? Um, You can also get into a pattern of not mulliganing in future games because, oh, mulliganing didn't work out, even though it was the correct decision from your seven-card hand, right? So you look at a suboptimal seven-card hand, and you think back to your previous times that you mulliganed hands that looked like this, and that you got worse six-card hands, right? That doesn't matter. That is not how luck and randomness work. They're all individual, independent situations that you have to take into account. So it's just, well, does the seven-card hand look like a hand that is going to win this first game or based on what I know my opponent is doing or I'm on the draw or the play? And with all of those pieces of information in play, what is the best decision for you to make? And that is the only decision you can make. You can make the optimal decision there for whether or not you should mulligan or keep based on all the information. That's all you have in your control. I think this is a big strength in my magic game. And I think it is not in chats, my Twitch chats <laughs> in general. Like When I mulligan, I feel fine about mulliganing. And I think a really important question to ask yourself, in addition to like just number of lands and things like that, mm-hmm. is, is this hand going to win me the game? Yes. And especially in games two and three, like, you know, you know the matchup, you know what the key cards are for your deck, you know how the game's likely to play out. Do you have the tools that are going to allow you to win a game? And I think I'm much more willing to mulligan hands that might have like an appropriate number of lands, but that don't have what I consider key cards in the matchup or don't feel like they have the resources to win the game based on how my opponent's attacking me. And then when you mulligan a hand like that and you get a bad six card hand, it feels especially bad, I think. But I, oh, yeah. I just, it just doesn't bother me at all. Like for whatever reason, I think I have this, this tenant down, but I think a lot of people have a lot of room to improve here. Yeah, I think it's it's a really tough thing to do and i think for what you said in our our previous few points is that if you don't get to play a lot of magic mulliganing feels bad like not getting you you are starting the game at a marked disadvantage with one fewer card now the scribe rule does change that a little bit but i think this is one where being aware of odds or or statistics for like you you know your your odds of drawing a land or drawing a spell and knowing that off the top of your head is really important. There's a really cool uh, odds calculator that you can use in Twitch chat that exists through, I think it's MTGBot. 
Yes. That I use a lot. I mean, I, I've gotten really comfortable. I, something that I think I maybe wouldn't have done before, like being really aware of, of these odds, is keeping one landers on the draw when you have like a couple two drops. I think exploring in Ixalan also makes this possible because I often have like two drops that explore. But when you keep a one lander on the draw, chat kind of freaks out sometimes. Yes. But you're like 75, 80% to hit. Mm-hmm. And then when you miss, like, Whatever. That's gonna, like, you think, oh, well, I'm 75 to 80% to hit. I'm basically 100% to hit. No, you have to be okay with the fact that 25% of the time, you're not gonna hit that land, and you're probably gonna lose that game because of it. But, like, that's okay. You're playing the odds. Like, if you have a 70, you, there's no way that you're gonna get a good six-card hand 75% of the time. I think that's probably not gonna happen. So I think taking those odds and comparing them for what the seven-card hand has to offer versus the six-card hand that you could get is also important. Yes, and I think I, I've improved a ton since I started streaming and since I started using that odds calculator. Mm-hmm. And you can go use ours. If you're playing Magic at home and you yeah. don't know and you've got a tough decision, we don't have to be streaming. Like You can just pull up Ethan's Twitch channel or my Twitch channel and type in our chat with not a yeah. soul there except you yeah. and put exclamation odds and do the thing and figure it out for yourself. And I would strongly, strongly, strongly encourage you to do that. We'll put maybe we can put a thing in the show notes maybe about like how to do that. Um, but we'll just outline it here. You go exclamation mark odds and you, you have to enter four numbers. The first number is going to be the number of cards in your deck that remain. The second is going to be the number of cards you want to see. The third number is the number of chances you have to see it. And the last number is the number of those cards you need to draw. So like if you're looking for a land and you have 16 lands left, 33 cards left, 16 lands that you want to see, you have two shots to draw it, and you need to draw one of them. So you'd be 33, 16, 2, 1. Yep, hypergeometric calculator. Yeah. All right, so kind of the underlying fundamental issue here, like in in this idea of considering whether or not to mulligan or whether you should have mulliganed or whether it was correct or not, is kind of this results-oriented thinking that you already nailed on and just this idea of flawed logic. Well, since my six-card hand isn't good, I shouldn't have mulliganed. I should have kept the sketchy seven. Um, So how how does this relate to real life? You should be trying to make correct decisions in the moment and trusting your preparation and avoiding self-doubt. So there's this book that I love. It's one of my favorite books of all time. It's called The Inner Game of Tennis by Timothy Galway. Um, And if you play tennis, you absolutely have to read this book if you haven't. And even if you don't play tennis, if you enjoy sports at all, you absolutely have to read this book. And even if you don't... You know I love sports, Ben. (laughs) I do. I think you would even like this book. Um, So just like a quick summary of what The Inner Game is. So this is like kind of a tag for the book. In every human endeavor, there are two arenas of engagement, the outer and the inner. The outer game is played on an external arena to overcome external obstacles to reach an external goal. The inner game takes place within the mind of the player and is played against such obstacles as fear, self-doubt, lapses in focus, and limited concepts or assumptions. The inner game is a proven method to overcome the self-imposed obstacles that prevent an individual or team from accessing their full potential. So right there... You know, I think this even relates to magic, like with this idea of mulliganing. So what what the book is about is this concept of self one and self two. And self one is like the part of you that knows how to do everything. Like you've practiced playing magic. You know whether or not you're supposed to mulligan. Or as a tennis player, you know how to hit a forehand. And then self two is the little voice in your head that you have a conversation with during while all that's happening. So during your match of magic and you're staring at that seven card hand with one land and you're deciding whether or not to mulligan... That little voice is saying, well, you mulliganed this last time and you got a six-card hand with no lands. You shouldn't mulligan this time, even if it is correct to mulligan. So trying to like remain in the present and ignore self-two. Like Self-two is the part of your brain that undermines what self-one already knows how to do. Or in tennis, you know, let's say you pushed your last forehand long. 
the next time you go to hit a forehand, that self two is right there saying, don't push your forehand long, don't push your forehand long, don't push your forehand long. And then you dump it in the net because you're trying to overcorrect. So being able to quiet the second voice that's in your head and trust that what you know how to do, you know how to do and let yourself be present in the moment and let like reaction and instinct control what's going on, especially like in relation to tennis. But there's this whole series. There's the inner game of music, the inner game of golf. There's one called the inner game of stress that I haven't read, but it looked great. And if you're not into sports at all, I assume it will be good because I've read the inner game of tennis and the inner game of music and everybody gets stressed out. So highly <laughs> recommend these books. If you haven't checked them out, they are awesome. Yeah, that, that second voice thing is really interesting. So for, for our listeners out there, all of the non-magic stuff is all content that Ben is bringing to the podcast. This is all stuff I, that I haven't heard of. And it's super interesting. That second voice thing is like, I, that just manifests itself as tilt for me. Like, especially when I used to play, I used to play poker a lot online. I don't anymore. But that idea of like, you know, well, uh, well, I tried to bluff last time and it didn't get through, but I like want to do it again. Or like, well, they can't have it two hands in a row. So I'll call them this time as well because they can't possibly have it. Even though you know that like they certainly could, they could have the best hand at this point, even though they had the best hand last time. Yeah, it's just statistics. But you're human and you have a lot of emotions about the interactions that you're having in this game. And when those emotions creep in and start to be able to take control of the actions that you're taking in the game, that is when your evaluations are going to be totally skewed. Yeah. All right. So the next point for uh, from the magic perspective is something that I think comes up a lot. It's sort of similar to it's the other side of your opponent top decking. It's I'm getting mana screwed or flooded so much. This is the the sort of manifestation of why me disease or why me mentality. So let's recognize that everyone in magic experiences the same amount of variance in terms of their draws as you do. I know that is a hard thing <laughs> to come to terms with. You're wrong. I'm unluckier than the rest of the world. <laughs> okay. Aside from Ben, who is just so unlucky, <laughs> you and me, listeners, we experience the same amount of variance. Now, that variance can come in peaks and valleys. You can be on a heater. You can be on a big purgatory 2-1 streak or a 1-2 streak. Your win-losses are going to even out over time to sort of best represent your skill level. But in a given smaller subset of your games, they may represent... Uh, uh, an outlier they may represent a high winning streak or a high losing streak all of that we have to accept yeah that that we're all experiencing the same amount of things one of my least favorite things ever it happens a lot more in poker but certainly in magic is people want to tell you their bad beat stories uh that help i think that happens a lot in magic too i just think you and i don't go to real life tournaments i guess that's true yeah but like it's just that is one of the least interesting things to hear i think ever like if you're telling your friend maybe but like even like when people in twitch chat come in and they're like oh man like this xyz like it's like yeah that sucks i i'm sorry that that happened to you but it happens to all of us you're gonna draw eight lands in a row sometimes and that is a bummer but we all flood out we all get mana screwed that's all gonna happen so if we accept that that is true what is in your control so what you do have in your control is how you build your deck and I think we, we sort of separate this. We go, well, I've built my deck already. I submitted my 40 cards. And now I'm in my game and I'm getting flooded. Well, those two things are related. So maybe, maybe it's just variance. But are you putting too few lands in your deck, maybe? Are you, are you putting 
18 lands in your deck when it's a 16 land format? Are you putting 16 lands in your deck when it's an 18 land format? Are you not maybe drafting or do you do you not uh, prioritize cards that help mitigate flood and screw as much as you should? Cards in Iconic Masters that I think of are Tormenting Voice, Amass the Components, Bounce Lands. How are you valuing these cards that, that help to mitigate mana screw and mana flood? And how are you including them in your decks? These are all things that are in your control, right? They're in your control in the draft. They're in your control in the way you construct your deck. So I think, yeah, we can say like, oh man, that that's a bummer. I got mana screwed or, oh, I, I flooded out all those games and there was nothing I could have done. But I think that idea of looking at the cards that, that could possibly have helped you in that situation. Well, if I had drawn card X, what was card X in your pool? Did you pass card X in the draft? How do you feel about that card? I think those are all things that you can do that you can be proactive about to help fix those situations in game. Yes. And I think a key thing that you said there about, you know, like bad beat stories being one of the most uninteresting things to hear is because you've already accepted this principle. And, <laughs> and I and I ha- and I have too, if I'm being honest, like mostly at this point, it's a, it's a running joke. But yeah, yeah. people that haven't, they want you to tell them, yeah, you were unlucky. They need that validation to feel mm-hmm. better about what happened to them because they're not able to process it on their own because they haven't accepted the fact that, yes, they're as lucky or unlucky as everyone else. It's a really unsavory conversation to have because what you what I want to say is like, yeah, I've had that happen too. Like, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, what's the big deal? We're all playing a game where like luck is 30% of it or whatever, whatever the percentage is that variance exists in the game of magic. But like, it doesn't, it's not interesting. It doesn't give me anything that I want to relate to other than to say, please don't tell me that story again. So the, the underlying issue here is complaining without looking for a solution. And I think that's like applicable in every area of your life, every job you have, no matter what you do. There are going to be complainers, and there are going to be people that don't complain. So a really great resource is Zig Ziglar, who's like a motivational speaker, and he's got these audio books, audio CDs. It's called Developing the Qualities of Success, uh, How to Stay Motivated. And anytime I'm feeling like, sorry for myself, anytime I'm like getting in this why me syndrome, I listen to these these recordings, and it it helps get me out of my funk. So what hmm. he talks about is this this idea of PLOM disease, P-L-O-M, poor little old me disease, and how to avoid that. So people who are like in this mentality of feeling sorry for themselves and want to tell you about it and their problems and how bad their life is, they're more interested in doing that than in finding solutions to their problems. And if if people are trying to have conversations with you about that, rather than commiserating with them, I would suggest maybe offering solutions to their problems. Now, some people might not be ready to hear that. So you've got to use your own sense of judgment there. And especially if you're falling into this trap, you need to avoid having a victim mentality and you need to avoid having a sense of entitlement. Uh, So I had a teacher that I really looked up to when I was growing up uh, who would, and anytime anybody said that's not fair, he would always say fair is a place where pigs win ribbons. I love that so much. That's so funny. For whatever reason, like that stuck with me through my whole life. And that's, that really is true. Like fair is, it's not a thing. Like life's not fair. You hear it all the time. But until mm. you really accept it and try to figure out how to do these things we're talking about, like choosing your own attitude, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, it's really easy to fall into the trap of complaining, especially if you've got other people around you that like to complain. You know, misery loves company is the saying. So he's got this saying, Zig Ziglar does, that says, uh, it's not what happens to you 
but how you handle what happens to you that makes all the difference. And that's that's really powerful. You don't, again, like you don't have any control over your opponent top decking. You do have control over your reaction to your opponent's top deck. Or mm-hmm. you don't have any control over not getting any lands in your opening seven card hand. You do have control over how you react to that. Are you going to be like negative and hating on magic cards or like quitting or uninstalling magic online or whatever, whatever, whatever? You get to choose how you react to that. And that's a really powerful thing once you really accept that to be true. Just some real life examples of things that people might complain about, debt and or money issues, talking about never having enough money or being in debt or credit card debt. If you're somebody that has money struggles, and this is like a, a really big area of interest to me. There's a guy called Dave Ramsey who does this radio show uh, about getting out of debt. And he's written books called um, Total Money Makeover and Financial Peace. And his his whole idea is this idea of a debt snowball. So that, uh, you know, let's say you've got student loans, you've got credit card bills, you've got a Walmart uh, credit card debt. Like you organize your bills from smallest to largest and you start to pay off the smallest one first, like super aggressively. Uh, and you try to have a yard sale, you try to work extra jobs, whatever, to get extra money to pay that off as quickly as possible. And then once you've paid that off, the money you were paying monthly towards that debt, you roll towards your second debt. And then once you get your second debt you know, crossed off, then you've got even more monthly money to work with that you had tied up in those first two debts that you applied to your third debt. And it's this whole concept he lays out, and it's awesome, and I think it's really good. And I would strongly recommend if you or anyone you know is having money issues to read his books and or listen to his radio show. It's great. Another real-life example, things people complain about are, I, I hate my job. So John Acuff is an author. He's, he's written lots of books. The ones I've read are Quitter and Start. Uh, they're books about changing your career path. So if you're somebody that's in, in a situation where you maybe aren't happy with your job, what's in your control that you can do to, to fix that? Can you get a different job? Can you start your own business? Can you find another area to work in that you're passionate about? I mean, he, he goes through all those different things in those books. Um, and there's also, you can also apply what we talked about with a fish philosophy here. Let's say somebody says to you, there's nothing I like about this job. Make a list of the things that you like about that job. Do you enjoy getting paid every week? Do you enjoy having paid vacation? Do you enjoy having a retirement plan? There's going to be more things than you think that you like about your job. Um, and just having that list of positive things in front of you and trying to focus on positive things is really powerful. It allows you to make a mental shift from being somebody that looks for faults and things and looks for things to complain about to somebody that looks for things that are good in their life and looks for things to be thankful for. And just that that tiny mental shift makes a big difference in your day-to-day life. Yeah, and will make a big difference in your magic gameplay as well. That idea of like taking ownership of things or figuring out what you can do to affect a change that you want to see. So the next magic point that we want to take a look at is the idea that I just keep losing. So I figured out that uh, variance is a thing and I go, well, I guess I'm just on a downswing. Oh, well. So this, I think, is like level two, right? You figure out that luck and variance exist and sometimes you're going to lose and that's going to be okay. And then you decide that that is out of your control. Well, there are always ways to improve. So Magic Online is a great source for you to be able to go back and rewatch your games, or like we talked about earlier in the episode, to take a look at your draft viewer. So just go, are there things that you would have done differently now? And are those different things that you would have done because you have information about future turns or future picks in the draft? Or is it because the decisions you made at that time were suboptimal? There is something very freeing about like losing and feeling confident that there was nothing you could have done differently. 
So like getting to that point I, is something I like highly encourage people to do because when you are able to go back and look at a game and go, nope, those were the right decisions and I still lost, great. You've done everything in your power to win that game and you couldn't and that's fine. That's going to happen. But when you win, there are also ways that you can improve. So, so winning, I think, is not necessarily equal to correct decision making. So there are always things you can learn from the games that you play. Um, did you miss lethal a turn earlier? Had you stabilized and maybe you should have been attacking but decided to wait one more turn? Did you give away that you had a counterspell in hand by pausing too long? This is certainly a timing tell that exists in uh, Magic Online. So just recognize that there's, a, there's a, this is a complex game and there are a lot of elements that are out of your control, but maximizing the points of the game that are in your control is what makes the game fun and so skill intensive. Yes, absolutely. That's why I play the game. And I think yeah. anybody that's spiky is. And if you're listening to our podcast, you're probably pretty spiky about the game too. Like there's right. nothing better than having conversations about was this correct? Did I do the right thing here? What if I had done this? Like after the game, analyzing the decision tree you went down and finding out if there was a more optimal decision tree you could have traveled that would have led to you winning the game or led to you winning the game sooner. Or like, did you play tight and you lost anyway? And I remember like you, you coming back from GP Providence, you felt like you played great. Yeah. And that you hadn't made many mistakes and granted you didn't get the record you wanted like you, what did you guys end up like two and four or something two four yeah yeah but you felt like you played well which is great yeah i mean like there i think being able to go back and i was aware of the few things that i thought that i could have done differently um that i think may have resulted in a match win and then who knows what dis, what tree that what branch of a tree that would have led us on uh in a path in that tournament but i can't really wallow in that right i made the decision that i made at the time and i can just look back and say well what would I do now differently? Do, do I think that that was the correct decision? This is one of, I think, the greatest things about creating magic content. So either streaming or like making YouTube videos. I even used to do this before I streamed. I would like, if I, if I like had the time or the energy, I would pretend that I was making draft videos when I <laughs> That's so awesome. I would just like, and I used to even, I think when I, when I, uh, I lived in Chicago and I had a roommate who played, uh, we would like, record our like we would like make draft videos for each other so like we wouldn't post them on youtube or anything but like it would be a way for us to like get value out of the other person drafting because like we would get to watch their thing but talking through your own thought process is if you've never done it if you've never talked through like all of your thought processes through a draft and through a match of magic or an entire three matches of a draft uh, you really should. It is going to make you a better player. Having to articulate the reasons you are doing things out loud is the surefire way to realize that a decision you're making is wrong. <laughs> well, and especially like going back and listening to yourself after oh, ab- when you're not having to make the decision. You're like, oh, did I really just like use that reasoning to justify attacking here? Yeah, it's really bad. And I, I mean, I've, I've done I've done things with you. I think I've like sent I've been like, hey, check out this video or check out this draft and and give me your feedback. And that's so helpful. I mean, you get to hear my thought process, you get to give me yours, all of that, taking advantage of your peers and your community of fellow magic players is such a huge way to get better. But but I cannot stress enough that like articulating your thought process out loud is a really, really amazing way to improve your gameplay. Yeah, so this this mentality of I just keep losing, I guess I'm on a downswing. Oh, well, like, what's the underlying problem there? I think you've got a bit of a victim mentality and or a lack of motivation to try to fix the problem of you losing all the time. So how does this relate to your life? So this this is back to Zig Ziglar and these audio CDs. 
Let me, let me ask you a question, Ethan, and I'm going to ask this of the audience out there too. Okay. Do you think there's something that you personally can do in the next two weeks that's actively going to make your life worse? For sure. Yes. Like you could go out and, I don't know, wreck your car on purpose, or right. you could steal money from a bank like and land in jail. You could actively make decisions that are going to make your life much, much, much worse. Now, do you think there's also something you could do in the next two weeks that's actively going to make your life better? Yeah, for sure. And the, and the choice is yours. Like you could not stop for coffee at Starbucks and save $4 and be healthier because you didn't have like a triple chocolate frappuccino. Making that choice of whether to do something that's going to improve your life or detract from your life is yours. And you, you absolutely, you know, I think it's easy to fall into this mindset of feeling helpless and feeling like you don't have control. But just that simple concept, if you really, like, if you acknowledge that's true, you can do things that are going to, that's going to improve your quality of life. So Zig Ziglar has a statement that says, regardless of how good my past has been, and regardless of how good or bad my present is right now, I can have an impact on my future. And knowing that you can affect positive change to your future is really empowering. It's very liberating and helps get you out of the funk of, well, I'm always doing bad and magic, or, well... My life just doesn't seem to be working out. I can't find a girlfriend. I can't blah, 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 blah. Whatever the, whatever the case is for you, you have agency. You have power. And hope hope is a huge motivator. And he's got another saying uh, that failure is an event, not a person. And I think that's a pretty key concept. Um, so, And especially relating back to magic, don't tie your self-worth into your results in magic. It's a game with variance. If you're losing... That doesn't mean you're a bad magic player or a failure or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It, it's going to happen. We're all going to lose. And I think there was a really great article that Jerry Thompson just wrote recently mm -hmm. called Social Currency, where he talked about his journey through magic uh, and his life and how he's changed as a person. And I would highly recommend uh, reading that article. I'll link to it in the show notes. It's awesome. So this last point we want to talk about in magic play is one that's pretty near and dear to my heart as someone who is a like degenerate drafter is that you you get really kind of tilted you get a little pissed that you just lost your last match or your last draft but you've set aside this time or you've got the evening free and you just jump immediately into the next queue you are almost certainly not about to play your best the classic rage draft the classic rage draft this was something like i mean again this was something that i, I learned playing poker about like being aware of tilt and when I couldn't control it and ha and and then knowing that I was on tilt and I couldn't control the tilt and that I had to get up. Those are hard things to be aware of and act on. With magic, it's less, uh, you know, high stakes because it's just a draft, but still you're losing value if you're jumping in and not playing your best. It's a game. It should be fun unless you're like, I mean, I feel like even if you're trying to grind to get on the pro tour, it still should be fun. You're... It's not being a professional magic player doesn't make you enough money for it to be like worth it if you're not enjoying it. So if you're not having fun, take a break, go for a walk, get a snack, uninstall magic online, which you made fun of. You were like, you've actually done that. <laughs> I've on, I, I mean, not recently, but like, I don't know, a few years ago, I, I installed MTGO like a bunch of times. <laughs> The only game I've ever done that with is World of Warcraft. I was I was pretty addicted to World of Warcraft two different occasions. Once at the end of high school, once in college, my roommate started playing and sucked me back in. <laughs> and both times, the only way I could stop was deleting it and deleting my accounts and like quitting cold yeah. turkey. I had no self-control. I think just that be, being aware of when you are off your game is such an important aspect of competitive gaming. And it's 
that that awareness of cutting your losses because you are investing money into magic i mean no one is playing no one except maybe like the highest of limited professionals are drafting for free right you're you're investing some amount of money per draft it's a slow bleed it's a quick bleed but some some way you are spending money on on magic online almost certainly and i think that you need to take care of that investment and when you're not playing your best you're not taking care of that investment yeah, so the underlying fundamental issue here in this is that you're frustrated with losing and or slash maybe not good enough uh, at Magic cards currently to be winning as much as you would like to win. Like your skill level doesn't match up with what your actual win rate is. Like what you, your picture of your win rate doesn't match up with your actual win rate. So maybe you're in a little bit of denial about mm-hmm. like what your actual win rate is and what you think it should be. So how, how can you fix this? You can focus on actually practicing magic and improving so that you can win more and have more fun if winning's part of what makes the game enjoyable for you. So there's some really great books that talk about improving at anything that I've read that I love. The first one is Talent is Overrated by Jeff Colvin, uh, and it talks about what really separates world-class performers from everyone else. So in this book, there's a study uh, by Anders Ericsson where he says, and I think this is also made famous by uh, Malcolm Gladwell also, Mm -hmm. uh, where he said, 10,000 hours of practice is what it takes to become exceptional at something. So if you're dedicating, that's, that's a lot. If you're dedicating three hours every day of the year towards that 10,000 hours, it still takes you over nine years to get to the 10,000 hour mark. Now, most people do not have three hours a day to dedicate to playing magic. You and I do, <laughs> thankfully. <laughs> uh, but it takes a long time to master something. And then he talks about this, this key idea of practice being deliberate. So like having a plan, having somebody that's more experienced than you coaching through what you, coaching you through what you need to be practicing. So in magic, maybe that means I know you offer uh, tutoring services in magic. Maybe that means like sending Ethan a direct message and saying, hey, would you mind tutoring me in magic? And once a week, like having a session with him and going through drafts and trying to improve that way. But like having having a plan and focused practice and putting in the time to practice, like that there's a, a considerable length of time that it takes to become good at something. It doesn't happen overnight. And practicing magic doesn't mean, I mean, you, you mentioned the, the tutoring thing, but it doesn't mean just playing more. Like we, there is such a wealth of uh, materials out there for you as a magic player in 2017. Twitch chat, Twitter uh, discord channels articles on channel fireball or star city games or a- any number of content producing websites are all ways for you to improve so it's not just the actual practice of the game but also studying and seeing what other people are doing i mean one of the best ways i think to improve is to watch streams i mean it's why i'm so addicted to doing it and to watching it is because it's so fun to be like this is someone i respect what are they doing what would i do differently why are they doing something differently than I would do? And why are they winning? Or why are they losing? Or whatever. Like being critical about all the things that you're seeing and having a conversation with them is what makes, I think, Twitch such a great place to improve as a player. Yes, absolutely. I can say with complete confidence that I've grown as a Magic player directly as a result of like interacting with specifically Sasha Ehedude and mm-hmm. Ryan Sachs. Both of those people in the last two months have like helped me grow tremendously and opened me up to different viewpoints about drafting and streaming also like so in the last year my magic game has upped a ton because prior to that my only magic experience was me drafting and me watching videos on channel fireball so i was taking advantage of one resource like Mm -hmm. (laughs) consuming every draft video on channel fireball but other than that like i wasn't able to talk to other real people that were doing what i was doing and grinding magic online cues yeah oh that was a lot man it is a lot 
So just kind of a few like key tenets to take away here that apply to both like these issues, like the why me mentality in magic and in real life. Um, some general generic ways to, to think about overcoming this. Remember that you've got a choice in how you react to what happens to you, despite the fact that you might not have control over what actually happens to you. Just make a commitment to yourself to not complain to other people about how bad your life or bad your luck is. If you will stop being negative and telling others negative things, your life's going to get better. Look for solutions to your problems instead of commiseration and try to surround yourself with people that are being positive. Take action on what you think might improve your life or your magic card game. Don't be a victim. Make a list of things that are good in your life or good about your magic card game instead of focusing on what's bad in your life or what's bad in your magic game that you have to mulligan all the time. Look at the positives. And the last thing would be giving to others. Focus on helping improving other people's lives is a great way to stop focusing on how bad your own is. So are you good at magic? Can you help other people be better at magic? Like this podcast, like I've, I've done this a little bit in my life. And that's one of the main reasons I wanted to start this podcast with you is that I wanted to have an outlet to help me channel my energy into something really positive. I'm good at this thing and I wanted to spread that to others. And it's been great. I can't yeah. imagine like what my life would be like without this podcast right now. I look forward to it every week. It's awesome. Yeah, for sure. I wanted, wanted to do a magic podcast for a long time and I'm so grateful to get the opportunity to do it. So faithful listeners of our show will realize that we did not do our normal roundtable discussion at the start of the show. And it's because we wanted to look at a couple things post making your own luck discussion and try and apply some of the concepts that we talked about to a few scenarios in the roundtable that we're going to do now. So Ben, you've got a draft viewer for us, yeah? Yeah, let me walk you through here. Great. So this is Iconic Masters, pack one, pick one. Cards you see in contention are Doorkeeper, one in a blue for the 0-4 Defender, two in a blue, tap target player mills X equals the number of defenders you control, amass the components, three in a blue sorcery, draw three cards and put a card from your hand on the bottom of your library, Mahamadi Jin, four blue blue for a 5-6 flyer, is it Boilerworks, the bounce land, the red-blue bounce land? Comes into play tapped. When it enters the battlefield, you return a land you control to its owner's hand and taps to add red and blue. I think those are the only four cards in consideration, really. So here's where I'm at, Ben. And you you really changed my perspective on this format from our last episode when you made that list of commons. And we sort of had a microscope to the fact that black and green's commons are severely lacking in comparison to red, blue, and whites. So I've been pretty much avoiding black and green when I can. And we also discussed that blue is the best color. And as we see in this pack, that is certainly the case with Doorkeeper, Master the Components, and Mahamodi Jin sort of coming to the forefront. But none of those cards, I think, would surpass our second point from our top eight ways to improve in Iconic Masters last week, which is that we got to take those bounce lands, man. We got to take Ezra Boiler Works, don't we? Yep. They're so good. That's what yeah. I snagged there. So I think that's the clear first pick. Uh, my chat really wanted to take Mahamadi Jin here, which I think is the fourth best option. Yeah, I, I agree. I would be on Is It Boilerworks, then Amass the Components, then Doorkeeper, and then Mahamadi Jin. I think big flying finishers that are six drops in this format are kind of a dime a dozen. And while Mahamadi Jin's like one of the better ones, it doesn't really matter which one you have as long as you have one. Like how much better is this than River Wheel Aerialists, which is the five and a blue four five flyer with prowess? slightly but it's also harder to cast like almost nothing well i mean but when it's six mana it's not that hard to cast like i don't i don't think the double blue single blue thing isn't that big of a consideration to me but yeah it's just like so it's one point of power and toughness different but it's sometimes going to be a five six when you cast a non-creature spell so and those those you can get 
much, much later. I don't really see Mahamudi Jin as being like a huge bomb in the format or anything. Yeah, so pack one, pick two. Moving on, uh, we've got an Is It Boilerworks in our pile. You see Claustrophobia, one blue-blue for the enchant creature. When it enters the battlefield, tap enchanted creature. An enchanted creature doesn't untap during its controller's untap, untap step. So you've got a great removal spell there. Abzan Falconer, two and a white for the two-three human soldier with Outlast for a white. So you can tap it, pay a white, and put a plus-one, plus-one counter on it as a sorcery. And then each creature you control with a plus-one, plus-one counter on it has flying. And then the rare... Epistle Persecutor, two black black for a 6-6 demon with flying and trample, and the text, you can't win the game and your opponents can't lose the game. So you got to have a plan to get rid of that guy. Yeah. What what are the ways to get rid of it in the format? So like there's uh, there's the one sacrifice outlet bubbling cauldron. What else? There's Foul Tongue Invocation. That's a sack. You can target yourself with Foul Tongue Invocation. Oh, yeah. Grizzly Spectacle. You can kill it with your own Grizzly Spectacle. You can repeal it. Uh, there's There's several ways to get rid of it. So it's not that difficult, right? Especially if you if you get it this early, you you can be on the lookout to make sure you have a few ways to to let it die. Yeah, I think so. I think it's enough of a bomb that I would be on taking it here. I mean, even though I just said I want to avoid black and green if I can, like Abyssal Persecutor is really good, and I think I would be on taking that here. I think I agree with you. I actually didn't take it. I took Claustrophobia, and in hindsight, I think taking Abyssal Persecutor is correct, and my chat really wanted me to take Abyssal Persecutor, and I picked Claustrophobia because I I wanted to be blue. I knew I wanted to be blue, and I knew Black's commons were bad, and I was feeling a little bit contrarian because they were just telling me to take Mahamati Jin, and I think that was wrong. So I I think I was trying to be like a little too clever for my own good here, uh, disagreeing with chat, Uh, and I think Abyssal Persecutor is probably the correct pick, but it's not that wrong to take claustrophobia i mean claustrophobia is still a fine option but i do think abyssal persecutor is probably the correct pick yeah that makes sense i don't think taking claustrophobia is that big of a mistake like just because of how much better blue is than black i think abyssal persecutor is maybe the quote-unquote correct pick yep moving on so we've got we've got an is it boilerworks and a claustrophobia you've got an is it boilerworks and an abyssal persecutor pack one pick three options you see include reeve soul one in a black for the sorcery destroy target creature with power three or less Dissolve, one blue-blue for an instant, counter-target spell, scry one, Rakdos Carnarium, the red-black bounce land, Carven carry added, one green-green for the 2-5 defender, when it enters the battlefield, draw a card, and Bloodgast, black-black for a 2-1, vampire spirit, can't block, has haste as long as an opponent has 10 or less life, and landfall, whenever a land enters the battlefield under your control, you may return Bloodgast from your graveyard to the battlefield. I don't think Bloodgast is particularly well suited in Iconic Masters. It's not really, really like a black aggro deck. So for me, it's between the Bounce Land and Reeve Soul if I have Abyssal Persecutor in my pile. And as much as I would like to take a Bounce Land here, I think if I have the black card, I'm going to take advantage of having a good black common to take because there are so few of them. So I think I would be on Reeve Soul over the Carnarium here to try and make sure that I can play the Abyssal Persecutor. But I think Carnarium is also a totally viable pick and I wouldn't fault anyone for taking that. Yeah, that's what I took here. Uh, I'm just on the Bounce Lands being so, so, so powerful. But I think Reeve Soul is also a very good card. And I think it's very close and kind of down to personal preference. Yeah. But at this point, like, so I was trying to, I was actually trying to decide between Rakdos Carnarium and Dissolve Hmm. uh, because I had Claustrophobia in my pile. And I was already starting to feel regret. Like I was already starting to get a little bit of this why me, why me mentality about not picking Abyssal Persecutor in this pick. Because uh, I saw the Reeve Soul. I knew that'd be a good option. There's a Black Bounce Land that would have paired very well with the Abyssal Persecutor also. So that was starting to creep in. And chat was really 
still vocalizing their their preference for Abyssal Persecutor. So I was a little bit tilted at this point in the draft. Moving on to pack one, pick four, you see the following cards in contention. Claustrophobia, one blue-blue again for the enchant creature that locks it down. Haunting him, four black-black. This card has been a house, an instant. Target player discards two cards. You can cast this during their draw step to make them discard like a card plus the card they drew. Or if you main phase it, you can make someone discard four cards. So this is like a big trump. Uh, in some of the Dirtle control mirrors, and I have a newfound respect for this card after this weekend. Hmm. It has both wrecked me, and I've wrecked other people with it. Um, and then another option is Blizzard Spectre. Uh, this has been underperforming a little bit. Two blue-black for a 2-3 flyer. When it deals combat damage to a player, choose one. That player returns a permanent he or she controls to his owner's hand, or that player discards a card. I want to fight you about Blizzard Spectre for a second. Yeah? What do you mean it's underperformed? Uh, I just thought it was better than it's played because out. Because you misread it? Uh, but <laughs> yeah that too i, I thought it was <laughs> i i this I'm, it sounds like i'm being rude but I, what i mean like i feel like a lot of people have done this have been like oh wait it doesn't do that it's terrible no it does fine things and if it did the thing you thought it did it would be a mythic rare yes i thought it was that you could choose what they returned to their hand when it hit them uh, which would be way more powerful than it is obviously and then when i chose that option and i didn't get to do that it felt really bad yeah but it's still a good card yeah just not great i think it's yeah i think i think it's still quite a good card i think i've been i've been happy with it in blue black decks that i've had it in it's interesting that you mentioned haunting him so i I see what you mean about it being good in in the dirtle control mirrors but i never know when to take it it wheels a lot yeah wheels a lot yeah, I mean, I think if I was on Abyssal Persecutor into Reeve Soul, I would certainly want to take a black card here. But I might just grab, like, a card that you didn't mention, Phyrexian Rager, two and a black for the 2-2, enters a battlefield, you draw a card and lose a life. I've liked that as just, like, a little speed bump thing that replaces itself and allows you to maybe trade off or chump against a, an aggressive deck and, and get to your, your other goodies. Yeah, I think that's important to note what you said there. If your plan is to attack with Phyrexian Rager, that's not a good plan. No. If you're putting it in your deck as a blocker or a speed bump, I think that's fine. Yeah, so I think I might be on that, but I could see Haunting him being better. I- I've I've been happy with it and also very unhappy with it, but I think the fact that you can even just nab a card in your opponent's draw step makes it, makes it worth it, so it's never really like a dead late-game card, as some discard spells are. But yeah, I think I'd be between Haunting him and Rager here. All right, moving on to pack one, pick five. We've got uh, White of Precinct 6. I have a newfound respect for this card. I drafted a busted deck with four of these and a bunch of removal. And it was black-red, right? It was black-red, yeah. I had all black-red, instant speed removal, double surreal memoir, four White of Precinct 6s, and then some dragon bombs at the top of the curve. Crazy. It was disgusting. Uh, but anyway, White, White of Precinct 6, one and a black for a 1-1. One, one. Uh, that gets plus one, plus one for each creature card in your opponent's graveyard phantom monster three and a blue for the three three flyer i think better than we initially thought at the beginning of the format yeah and sanguine bond three black black for the enchantment whenever you gain life target opponent loses that much life yeah i mean we, we had talked about sanguine bond earlier in the episode is like when do you take it as a signal is now when you take it is, is pick five a signal I, i'm more on the the i want it to wheel plan i don't know what your experience has been about this card i think that archetype's really good and mm-hmm. I, I i'm interested in taking it around pick five as a signal and moving in on the archetype and i i was at this point i was really regretting not taking the abyssal persecutor because i would have been a lot like i wasn't in black at all at this point i had two bounce lands and two blue cards and moving in i would have had to give up both my blue cards and hope that white black was open and it's such a narrow card that if it wasn't open i would have really been you know in a bad spot in the draft but i definitely had why mentality going on here mostly because i think chat and i had disagreed 
so much on what the picks were that I was like, I was trying to interact with chat and I was forced to go back and reevaluate paths of what might've been had I taken, taken the lines that chat wanted to do. Yeah. This is one of the biggest detriments of Twitch chat. I think I mean, I've been singing streaming and Twitch's praises on the episode today, but one of the, the toughest things is you get too many cooks in the kitchen and you get people with different experiences, different preferences, different levels of skill, all giving feedback about what the pick should be, and you as the streamer want to mediate all of that and take it into account because you respect your viewers, you certainly have an idea of whose opinions maybe you respect more than others in terms of what you want to take uh, as good influence for your picks, but I think it's a really hard thing to navigate and juggle and can really get in your head if it is there's a clear decision tree that that start, starts to branch out over a few picks that they would have been right about you know yeah i completely agree so this draft i ended up uh navigating into black in pack two and i ended up blue black so my deck would have been better had i jumped into black from the start i think but importantly i didn't fall into the trap of well i passed all this good black i can't possibly ever move into black Black was still yeah. open and it was still correct for me to move into black, despite the fact that I didn't do it like at the optimal time. I was still able to do it at a slightly suboptimal time, but end up with a good deck. Um, my deck ended up 3-0-ing, but it got, I think it got pretty lucky to 3-0. It was probably a 2-1 type deck. But yeah, definitely, definitely some stuff we've talked about in the episode today going on in that draft for sure. Yeah, you can definitely get in your head about like just figuring out what might have been in the draft. Um, I wanted to take a look at one other thing, which was uh, an opening hand and whether or not it's worth keeping. Um, just real quick as a, a, a way to think about like, you know, well, what, what's the decision you're going to make at the time? So so you have a, a blue-white control deck. Uh, your win conditions are basically two doorkeepers and a splashed uh, assault formation. You've got like five benevolent ancestors in the deck. So that's the oh, two, yeah. two and a white 0-4 defender that can tap to prevent a damage to something. Um, so your opening hand consists of two islands a claustrophobia that's the removal spell we've talked about two of those benevolent ancestors a survival cache which is two and white for a sorcery you gain two life then if you have more life than an opponent you draw a card and it has rebound so you can you exile it when you cast it and then it comes back uh, at your next upkeep and you can cast it for free and wing shards which is one white white for an instant target player sacrifices an attacking creature and it has storm so this is your opening hand. You see two islands, a claustrophobia, and four white cards, one of which is double white. So I'm going to tell you that it's game one of your match, so you have no information on what your opponent is playing. You have eight white sources in your deck, and you are on the draw. So that's all the information you have. Ben, what do you do with that information? Uh, first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to go type in that odds calculator, and I'm going to type 33, 8, which would be the amount of white sources I have in my deck. That's my amount of successes. And then I would type, let's see, one, two, three. I have three draw steps to find a white source. And why, why, do, you say, why do you say three draw steps to find a white source? Because I'm on the draw. So on my first turn, I get a draw card. So turn one, turn two, turn three, I get a draw card. So I have three draw steps to find a white source for me to cast Benevolent Ancestor on time. Presumably, mm -hmm. that's what I want to do on turn three. Right. Uh, barring me drawing something different in those first two draw steps. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm fine with Benevolent Ancestor being my first first play in the format. I think yeah. that's a respectable play. Uh, it's not a blazingly fast format by any means. Right. Unless you're up against like a blue-red aggro deck, you're probably going to be okay. Yeah. So uh, 33, 8, 3, 1, one of those eight planes is what I need. Uh, mm -hmm. that would be what I would type in that odds calculator. Have you run that? I don't I know have. what that it's, is off the top of my head. It's 58%. 
Yeah, slightly higher than 50-50. And then I bet it goes up fairly significantly if you take it to four, mm-hmm. uh, probably closer to 70% or 65%. I'm I'm fine keeping here. There's also probably other cards in my deck. Uh, if I draw an island, I can Claustrophobia on turn three, which will buy me time to find mm-hmm. my white source. It just seems like a totally fine keep to me. Yeah, I agree. And I think that, so like, I think there's information to take into account there, right? Being on the draw versus being on the play is super important. I think if you're on the play, you can't keep this hand, or at least I I would not keep this hand because I think the odds probably go below 50%, and that's when I'm not really looking to, uh, to, to take the gamble. And I think the fact that it's game one is important because you don't know what your opponent is playing against. Because I think the fact that what we what I did find out is that my opponent did have an aggressive blue-red deck, I probably wouldn't have kept this hand against them because it is too slow. It does uh, stumble a little bit. And being on the draw, not having a play until turn three, and not even knowing that that play is going to be guaranteed is important. But this is all hindsight information that I have, right? The only thing that I can do is take the information that I have at the, the time that I get to make the decision and make the best decision possible, which I think is understanding the odds, understanding what's in your deck, understanding that you don't know what is in your opponent's deck, and deciding to keep. And then applying that information in future games. So if you're staring at a very similar opening hand in game two, you probably would not keep knowing right. what deck your opponent is on. Mm-hmm. But I, and I think doing this again in, in future games, like just because this doesn't end up working out, I think I did even, I think my opponent, I think basically everything bad happened. Like my opponent was on blue red <laughs> aggro, I stumbled on mana, blah, blah. But like that doesn't change the fact that I believe this is a correct decision. I look back on this days later and I look at this hand and I go, yep. The odds are correct. I should be keeping this hand. Yep, 10 out of 10 times you keep that. Right. So just the fact that it didn't... and, and But like 10 out of 10 times, I keep that. And whatever, 43% of the time, I'm not going to hit that planes by turn three. And that's okay. I'm going to be okay with that. Yep, I agree. All right. Thanks so much for bringing all of your outside knowledge to this episode, man. Yeah, I'm, I'm really... I hope it came across in the episode. I'm really like passionate about all these books and like this way of thinking about things. Uh, and I'll put in the in where you download the podcast, even if you're not a patron and you're not getting copies of our show notes or whatever. Like if you're a patron, you'll see it in the show notes. Uh, and if you're not, I'll put it in where you download the podcast. So if you click on that, uh, this information will be there, like all these books and all these things we've talked about. And if you're in need of a book to read or if you've got a trip coming up or you can relate to some of what we talked about in this episode, you should 100% check these books out. They are all very much worth your time and have all made a big impact on my life. I also want to throw out, I mean, I I feel like I suggest that people should stream a lot or should create content a lot. And I think a big hurdle for that is that you don't get an audience when you start out. Like, it's hard to do that. I can't speak for Ben. I'll speak for myself. I am always looking for new streams to consume. And so if you decide that you want to start streaming, shoot me a message on Twitter or shoot us an email and let us know that you're streaming under a handle or, or come on in Twitch and let us know. I would love to come check out more content. And, and I often find that smaller streams are a much more intimate and fun community where everyone's vo- voice is heard and everyone is is considered in a way that doesn't really happen in in larger streams so i highly encourage people to do that and to let you know that that when i can you have an audience member in me yep absolutely i would tack my name onto that sweet so next week we are toying with the idea of 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 trying to get a guest on we'll have more information with that but we will be back to ixalan land iconic masters is over this week ben are you going to be able to handle yourself i'm gonna miss it quite a bit (laughs) but i'm like everyone's like oh we got to go back to ixalan like 
I'm totally fine once Iconic Masters is over to go back and draft Ixalan, and I'm going to have a blast doing it. Yeah, me too. All right. Uh, thank you, as always, to Salty Pretzels for our intro and outro music. Make sure you give it a listen. Reminder, we've got our XLN treasure hunt going on. That's going to end on December 20th. You can tweet those screenshots at Lords of Limited or email us screenshots at our email address, lordsoflimited at gmail.com. If you complete five of those, you get entered into a giveaway for four draft sets of Ixalan. And we've got our 18-hour stream on lock, thanks mm-hmm. to Generation D20's hard work. Yeah. Uh, ben, I had some people in, in chat this week asking if we were going to come up with a vintage cube treasure hunt list. And I think that might be a fun thing to set up. What do you think? That sounds great. Yeah. I don't know what sort of busted things we can come up with, but I'm sure we'll have no trouble figuring out some sweet board states or combos for people to... Uh, to try and unlock um if you're looking to get in touch with us you can find us on twitch and twitter at twitch.tv slash lord tupperware that's me twitch.tv slash mr metronome who's on a streaming heater these days we're also under those same usernames on twitter i have a youtube channel youtube.com slash c slash lord tupperware one iconic masters draft up there right now hoping to get another one up there before it goes offline and then we'll have some more content coming your way soon enough Yeah, if you've got any feedback about the show or questions, especially from this episode, I I would love to hear from you if you have already read any of these books or know any of these people. Um, I would love to hear that. Or if you decide you want to read some of them and they help you out in your life. I would love you to tweet at me or shoot us an email at lordsoflimited at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening, and we'll catch you next week for another episode of Lords of Limited. Yep. Thanks, everybody. See you later.